Who else uh, finds that song we just sang just explosively powerful? I mean, it's awesome. That's the gospel. We just sang the gospel. And Paul says the gospel is the power of God. And if that song was more than just a song, but your heart really believes it, <laughs> the power of God, the power of God is running through your life. Okay, uh, we have uh, entered a wonderful time of the year, even though it's 20 degrees outside right now. Um, it's, it's Lent. It's what Christians call Lent. Lent is the Latin word for spring. Um, yes, spring is coming, whether it feels like it or not. And Lent... It, for Christians is this 40-day period of time leading up to Good Friday, and it's, it's a time of spring cleaning uh, for Christians to prepare their hearts uh, for, this, for the song that we just sang, uh, that Jesus came and he rescued us and he redeemed us um, and offered us all this undeserved grace and mercy, and um, that does produce resurrection life uh, in a person's life. So uh, during this season, what we've decided to do is look at God's calendar because God gave his people a calendar. Um, we don't just make appointments with God. God makes appointments with us. And these appointments that God makes, uh, he shaped them, he designed them, what they're to look like. Um, there's just certain aspects of them that I love so much. I love that the appointments that he made uh, us with him, um, our feasts, there'd be parties, they're about food, they're about relationship, they're about joy, um, because God is. I mean, the Jewish people say it so well, l'chaim, to life, um, and that's God. God is l'chaim, he's to life, for life, about our joy. Um, but more importantly, these feasts alone tell the whole story of God. They tell the whole story of the Bible. And because the whole story is about Jesus, these feasts um, both point back to the beginning of the story and the things that God has done. But more importantly, they point forward. They're dress rehearsals. They're rehearsing the best part of the story that is still to come. And that best part is Christ, um, his first and second coming. So Hopefully that's all going to be flushed out in the next couple of weeks. The place where God instructs his feast are several, but the, the place that we're looking at is Leviticus 23. So let's go in our Bibles to that. Let's have a smile on our face as we turn to the book of Leviticus. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Um, Exodus is the second. Leviticus is the third. While you're turning there, Leviticus, does anybody know what that word means? I don't either. <laughs> but here's what I do know. I know the Hebrew title for the book because the Hebrew title for every book of their Bible, which is the Old Testament, is they simply take the first word. And the first words of Leviticus are, the Lord called. And that word called is the first word, so the Lord called is the title of, of, of this book. And I love that because 
we believe in a God who wants to be known through his calling out to us. He's a, he's a God who, who speaks to us. He calls out. So these are some of the things that God has called out. Leviticus 23. Um, we like to stand for the reading of God's word, so if you are able, please do that. I'm going to start with verse 3, the first feast. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. And you are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Now these then are the Lord's appointments, his sacred assemblies, these gatherings that he has shaped, these, these things that point backward and are, are rehearsals to things yet to come. And I want you to proclaim them at their appointed time. The first, the Lord's Passover, begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. And then on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast, Festival of Unleavened Bread, begins. For seven days, you must eat bread with no yeast. And on the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It's to be a Sabbath. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And then the seventh day, Hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Folks, this is my text this week. You may be seated. When I looked at this this week, I'm like, what am I going to preach? <laughs> um, this, this feast is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or another way of, of putting it in our language, a festival of yeast-free bread. Um, that's, that's how it would sound to them. Um, it's not that unimaginable to us, is it? All you gluten-free people. <laughs> like, let's have a gluten-free day, or let's have a whole week of gluten-free. Um, that's, that's kind of getting to the essence, except it's yeast. No yeast for a week. And when you look at how God shapes this feast from the verses we looked at, verses 7 and 8, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to put a Sabbath at the beginning of this feast and a Sabbath at the end of the feast. The first day and the seventh day are to be Sabbath. Now to us, it's just a little bit ho-hum because Sabbath uh, is something that's a little bit ho-hum to us. But to a Jew, Sabbath is like Christmas. That's honestly how they see Sabbath. So essentially... It's like God is asking them, okay, the seven-day seven feast, the first day I want to be Christmas, and the last day I want to be Christmas, kind of within everything else being flavored with that Christmas uh, thing, spirit. And maybe the way that it might work in our world is, you know, we have Christmas, and then seven days later we have New Year's Day, and... Imagine if that was all just one week-long feast to celebrate, to take in, to digest the story of God and, and, and what, what is commemorated or to be remembered through this feast. Now, Sabbath, if you think about it, and I like this picture, both being at the beginning of the feast and at the end of the feast, uh, is also a picture of the story of God because Sabbath is at the very beginning of the story and Sabbath will be at the very end. 
when God made the world, he made it for Sabbath. And Sabbath, probably the best, I've heard uh, a, a Jewish person say this, the, the, the best meaning of Sabbath is shalom. That's why the greeting on Sabbath is Shabbat Shalom. Shalom is more than just the absence of conflict. Shalom is when everything is the way God intended it to be. In perfect order, perfect harmony. And that's the world God made. And that's what we lost when sin entered the world. But Sabbath will also define the world that God will remake. Because one day God is going to make all things new. And when he does, it will be Shabbat Shalom. It'll be Merry Christmas every single day. That's worth an amen or something. I mean, think about that. That's, that's our hope. That's what we just learned in Revelation. So people sometimes ask me, are, 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 we, are, are we supposed to keep these feasts? And really, my, my only answer back to them, well, are we supposed to, do we have to keep Christmas? That's my answer. Um, now, God gives also more shape to this feast than just seven days with the first day and the last day uh, being like Christmas or Sabbath. Um, if you go to the first time he instructs this feast, it's in Exodus 12. So let's turn there. And if you have a Bible like mine, Exodus 12 is on page 53. And when you get there, you're going to realize if you were here last week, this is the same text. Because it's in the context of Passover. And, and, and right in the heart of God's instructions regarding Passover, he now instructs uh, this feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So in verses 14 to 16, God says, okay, this is a day that you are to commemorate for the generations to come. And you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your house houses and whatever whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day to the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. Wow. On the first day hold a sacred assembly, which is a Sabbath, and on the seventh day do the same. Do not work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone else to eat. This is what you may do. So again we've we've heard the same thing now what we heard in Leviticus. Um, seven days, first day, last day being um, like a Sabbath, and then no leaven, no yeast. And I want us to see, it's, it's, it's not just God saying, don't look at the yeast, don't touch the yeast, or, or just store away the yeast. It's no, I want you to remove all the yeast, purge it, from your home and from your life. And then God repeats the same instruction for this feast in verses 16 to 19 of Exodus 12. It's the same thing. And, and, and we see now from the, from, if you look at all of chapter 12, you'd see the context in which it's placed is, is Passover because it's directly connected to Passover. In fact, it's the continuation of Passover. More importantly, it's God's people. Uh, it's, it's their response to Passover. Because there should be a response to Passover. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread spells that out. Because what's Passover? 
Passover is when you celebrate when God's judgment came down on all of Egypt. And yet God spares the Hebrews. And he spares them not because the Hebrews are good and the Egyptians are bad. Because the Hebrews that day stood before a holy God and they were just as much the debtors that their uh, Egyptian neighbors were, were. They were just as worthy of death, but God spared them because of the blood of a lamb that covered them. It was the lamb's life for their life. So here's the question that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is answering. How do we respond to such undeserved grace? And then when you go to Exodus 13, for yet a third time, in just a few short verses, God instructs the Feast of Unleavened Bread yet again. Verses 3 to 11. But this time, I noticed something. This third time that God instructs it, it's packaged. It's packaged within God's holiness. For instance, when you read verse 2, the, the verse preceding um, God's instruction, the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, God says, the firstborn belongs to me. That's still the way it is, Israel, not just on Passover, but forever. Firstborn belongs to me. Then he instructs the Feast of Unleavened Bread through verse 11. And then verses 12 and 13, he picks up on this. He says, uh, to them, he says, the firstborn, not even just of your family, but the firstborn of every living thing that you possess, it belongs to me and must be redeemable, must be redeemed. In fact, God even knows how this is going to stir um, their hearts, how, how they're going to react to it, because verse 14, God says then, yeah, and when your firstborn asks you, your firstborn son, like, why do I need to be redeemed, but my younger siblings don't need to be redeemed? Well, just tell them then about Passover. Tell them about the grace and mercy of God, how God's holy judgment fell on all of Egypt, and how we stood before him as debtors, but by his undeserved grace, he provided a substitute. And I think there's something that we're supposed to see here. As wonderful, as incredible as God's mercy, compassion, grace is, that doesn't negate the fact that he's a holy God. He's holy. In fact, he's holy, holy, holy. And see, when we understand that, that, that God is holy and that we are not, that we are debtors, that we are sinners, that we fall so short of the holiness of God, I'm telling you, that only makes our hearts love him more and love his grace. So God puts this Feast of Unleavened Bread, I think, as a response to Passover. It's a response to God's grace. And what is that response? God says, seven days, I want you to get all the leaven out. All the leaven out of your homes. All of it. Purge yourself. Purge your lives. This is where I can't help but smile. Because when I think about how my faith was pushed into me, it was... 
primarily through propositions. It was through sermons, it was through doctrine, it was through catechism. It was very didactic and propositional. And I am not here to say that that was all bad. In fact, in many ways, there were good aspects to it. But when I look at how God is, is, is pushing this story, uh, a story that teaches uh, them about who God is, about who they are, about what they need and what God has done for them, it's not simply through propositions. It's not through sermons. Because what God wants at the end of the day is not just for us to know facts about him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know his love. He wants us to know um, that we're debtors. He want, wants us to know his grace existentially. In fact, the Hebrews have a word for this kind of knowing. It's, it's the Hebrew word yada. And, and, and the best way I can explain this kind of knowing, it's, 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 it would be like if I had a bucket of ice cold water up here. And I kind of tipped it, and you saw some of the water and the ice fall out. And I'd say, do you believe me that this water's cold? You'd say, yes. You would know that as fact. But it would be a whole different thing if I said, all right, now put your hand in it and just leave it there. That's yada. That's not just knowing that this water is cold by fact. That's knowing it by plunging your hand in it and knowing it existentially, experientially. And that's how God wants us to know him. That's why he says, uh, you know what, one time a year, I want every family to go to their flocks, get your best lamb, and take that cute lamb into your home for four days, make that lamb almost like the family pet, and then four days later, I want you to slaughter that lamb, I want you to eat that lamb, and therefore celebrate my grace. Because God doesn't want us to just know facts. He doesn't want us to just know propositionally that we are debtors. He wants us to experience that reality. I mean, just think about this. Every year, getting to that point where after this lamb has been in your home for four days, now all of a sudden have to get out the knife and kill it. And then eat it. I mean, that would wreck me. In a good way. Yeah, this is what God did for you, Rod. He became that lamb. And now God says, guess what? We're not done yet. Let's have another feast for seven days. I want you to purge all the leaven, all the yeast from your homes and from your life. Our family lived in Jerusalem several years ago during this feast. And I didn't even realize that Jewish people still practice these feasts. One day I woke up, started walking uh, to class, and there were all these dumpster fires going on. You know, those big barrels. And they're just right there on the, the sidewalk, right in the heart of the city, um, sometimes right outside of five-star hotels, like King David Hotel, 
And I'm just like, what? Why all these dumpster fires? If I, I ask somebody, what, what's going on here? Passover's coming. We're getting the leaven out. And then the thing that shocked me the most is when I went into the grocery store. Half the shelves were empty. I'm like, where's all the food? Because just a small section would be bread, but you start to realize that yeast is not just in bread, it's in beer, it's in cereal, it's in, it's in everything and anything that even contained a hint of yeast, all of it was removed from the grocery store. And they did this. In fact, this is so important to God that God says anyone who doesn't participate in this is to be cut off from the community. Now here's where we have to start asking some basic questions, like why leaven? What is it about yeast or leaven? Well, yeast is one of the Bible's most powerful metaphors for sin and decay. And even still, when I say that, it still doesn't, I don't think, affect us that much because we're so removed from from the culinary arts and from bread making um, that we don't even see the power of this metaphor. So let me just tell you a few things I learned this week just about yeast and bread and how all of this works. Um, well, let me even start with this. Um, to step back into the ancient world, the whole staple for their diet is bread. Their main course for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, it's bread. Their very food, the word for food is bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. Jesus prays. He says, give us today our daily bread. The other thing is, they're not buying their bread um, in a grocery store or a bakery. Every family is producing their own bread. So that should tell us that, that bread making and, and, and the role of yeast in this is as common to them as maybe what a smartphone or the internet is to us. They're making bread every day, all day. Now what makes bread bread and not a cracker is the yeast. And yeast is a catalyst. It's, it's, it's actually a living thing. That when you take even a small amount of it and put it into a lump of dough, it is going to spread so rapidly to that whole lump. And here's what, what, what it does. As it spreads through the dough, it digests the sugar, and it then creates carbon dioxide, and this is what causes it to rise. And really what I just described is the process of fermentation and decay. That's what's going on to make the bread rise caused by the catalyst, that living thing, the yeast. And here's the deal. If you allow yeast to sit too long in a lump of dough, it begins to sour. And that's where we get the whole idea of sourdough. So I hope from this you can start to see now what a powerful metaphor yeast is for sin and decay. 
Because I could take two lumps of dough right now. One of those lumps could contain yeast. The other one would have no yeast. I could put them before you, and I promise you, you wouldn't be able to say that one has yeast and that one doesn't. You wouldn't know. And if sin is like yeast then, sin is unseen. We can't see it. It's oftentimes hidden. It's oftentimes undetected. It's, it, it, it's inside a person. It's, it's the hidden thoughts and the hidden motives. It's, it's the unseen intentions of one's heart that people can't see. And God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but I, the Lord, look at the heart. See, Jesus uses this metaphor with his disciples. He says, beware of the leaven or the yeast of Herod and the Pharisees. Now, when I was thinking about this week, my first reaction to this was, how can you group Herod and the Pharisees together? These guys from the outward appearance could not have looked more different. I mean, Herod is this playboy king. He's a cruel megalomaniac. The Pharisees are the most righteous, godly people of their day. Everybody could look at Herod and see Herod's sin. Herod just wore his sin loudly and proudly. All of Israel knew what Herod was about. They, they knew how Herod used people for his gain. Conversely, the Pharisees are, are, are this group of people that are intensely devoted to God. They're, they're Bible-believing. They're the Spirit-filled. They're the most reputable people of Jesus' day. But here's the takeaway. According to Jesus, on the outside, so different. Uh-uh, not on the inside. On the inside, the Pharisee is just as rotten as Herod. I think Jesus would say, Herod used people for personal gain, but Pharisees, you use God for personal gain. And I'll tell you, we, 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 we have now just run into some very scary stuff. Because for me to paraphrase what Jesus is saying here, he, he is saying, Pastor, you can be just as rotten at the core as any pagan out there. But on the outside, no one will know. And this is why Jesus says certain things uh, like, you Pharisee, you, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're rotten. Or, or you're like a bunch of whitewashed tombs that, that look so sparkly clean on the outside, but on the inside you're full of death. And see, unless we are willing to look inside, we are in great danger of becoming like a Pharisee. Because let's be honest right now. We can serve God. We can serve people. Something that looks so good on the outside for the most selfish reasons. We can pursue God. We can live for him with all our heart, but still have the most 
self-exalted intentions in that. This is why Jesus looks at his disciples and, and starts it with beware, because the most dangerous sin is not the sin that we can see, it's the sin that we can't see. Especially the sin that lies hidden underneath goodness and spirituality. And I'd say maybe the scariest thing with this whole metaphor of sin as leaven is when you think about how leaven uh, spreads so quickly through a lump of dough, if, 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 if oh, it does, that this meta- it holds true in this metaphor, you put a little pinch of sin in, in a person's life, and you can't keep it contained. It's going to spread through the whole so fast. And I think so many Christians today think that they can just play around with sin because we have such little respect for the potency of sin. We think we can just put a little pinch in our life here, a little pinch of, pinch of sin in our life there, that we can manage it, that we can kind of keep it in its place, we can keep it in its closet, and it's going to stay there. Uh-uh, no, it's not. It's going to spread through the whole lump of dough, and it's going to do what leaven does. It's going to take all the sweetness out, and it's going to make us sour. And I'll give you an example. Some of you right now in this room might be nursing a grudge. I don't know who you are, but in a room this size, some of you are nursing a grudge. Someone's hurt you. And rather than doing the hard work of forgiving that person and possibly reconciling, you just feed that grudge. You justify your hatred. You take on this victim identity. You, you slander that person in your heart. And yes, forgiveness is hard. It's, it, it's one of the most difficult things that we can do. But, but if sin is like leaven, if, if we don't do the work of rooting that out, over time, that leaven is going to spread through the whole of our life and the whole of our relationships, and it's going to make us sour. It's going to take all the sweetness out. And this isn't just true about nursing a grudge. This is true about lust. Uh, So many of us think that we can just have a little bit of lust tucked away in our lives and that it's not going to end up being that big a deal, that we can manage it, that we can control it. But guess what? If sin is like leaven, it's going to just keep spreading and spreading and bringing decay. It's true about idolatry, pride, selfishness, covetousness, discontentment, anger, jealousy, greed. I respect it. Several years ago, my dad was diagnosed with melanoma. I'll tell you what, those doctors did not mess around when that diagnosis was made. They very quickly in the process went in, performed surgery, and they not only cut out the melanoma, which was in the side of his, right side of his face, but they cut out all the glands on that part of his face going all the way down his neck. And they didn't treat that melanoma like, hey, you know, Mr. Vinsalcoma, we, we, we really don't want to tell you that you have melanoma because what you really have is just 
You have a headache. We're just going to give you a couple aspirin. No. That's how you treat melanoma. And if you have melanoma, you need to know you have it, and you need to be ruthless in getting it out. And if you and I don't deal with sin this way, it will become more and more in our lives. It's going to spread like cancer. It's going to break in. It's going to bring decay. It's going to destroy us. And it's going to break out and hurt those around us. And that's why I, I, when I'm looking at this Feast of Unleavened Bread, I'm just smiling at the brilliance of God um, because rather than just giving us a proposition, he gives them this week-long feast after he saves them, after he brings them to himself, after they've experienced his grace and, ju- and, and mercy in their lives. He says, now, in light of my grace, get the leaven out. You know what, this became a family affair. To this day in the Jewish homes, it's a family affair. They shine a light in every closet. They shine a light in, in, in every cupboard. They, every nook and cranny of their home, they are looking for even the smallest crumb. They are cleaning everything, whether it might have any leaven or not. We are getting every particle of leaven out. And they knew that this is more than just about leaven and yeast, but they understand the metaphor of yeast. In the same way we're cleaning our house, we need to do spring cleaning in our lives, in our hearts. The sin must get out. In fact, there's a a couple of passages in the Old Testament. King Josiah, King Hezekiah, both of these guys are faithful to the Lord. Um, It says about King Josiah, King Josiah gave this order to all the people, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. And then it says, neither in the days of the judgments who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel, nor the kings of Judah had any Passover ever been observed. And why was this the greatest of all Passovers? Because of the next verse, Josiah got rid of the mediums, the spiritists, the household gods, the idols, um, and every detestable things all throughout the land of Judah. Got the leaven out. Same is true with King Hezekiah. As he called them to prepare for Passover, uh, he, he, he called them to identify every idol in the land and and every idol was identified they were smashed they were taken down and they were thrown out they got the leaven out and if you think this is just an old testament idea paul talks about this in first corinthians 5 should have marked this Okay, right now I'm living my dream of can't find where I have to be in the Bible. I have that dream at night. Like, where is it? <laughs> it's a lot better than the dream of I'm preaching, I'm preaching, 
I forgot to put my clothes on today. <laughs> that one wakes me up immediately. Um, 1 Corinthians, what? 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 8. Thank you. It's a team effort here. Your boasting, says Paul, to the Corinthian Christians, is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? He's picking up on this, on this metaphor. Just a little bit. It's going to all of a sudden spread to the whole batch. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Gospel, folks. Because of God's undeserved grace and mercy in our lives. Get it out. And I'm not stopping with that because Paul then says, therefore, let us keep the feast. Keep it. Not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness. There he's connecting the, the physical leaven with the, the, the metaphor of leaven as sin. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In fact, if you want to know uh, what Paul had in mind, the, the, the leaven that he's referring to, you just have to go to the first verse of chapter 5 where it says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, the kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul's looking at that and saying, get that leaven out of here. And I think that Christ followers today, we, we've become too comfortable with having too much leaven in our, in our homes, in our marriages, in our lives. Well, we're not that much different than the world. What is the leaven in your life? What is it in your home? What is it in your family? What is it in your marriage? And maybe more importantly, how do we get the leaven out? Because I think this is where so many Christians just like take this upon themselves and, and make this all about self-effort, roll up their sleeves, and let's go. And they do this in their own strength. I'm telling you, we don't need three steps to how to get the leaven out. We don't need a technique to how to get the leaven out of our lives. What we first need is Passover. We need a personal Passover, a personal experience of God's grace in our hearts and lives. Because what Passover reminds us, it, it, it screams at us, it's not what we do and give to God, it's what God does and gives to us. This undeserved gift. Right now, do you know what God has done for you?
When's the last time you've wept over what God has done for you? Sat next to a lady this morning who wept and wept the whole service. If you don't know the full extent of your sin, if you don't know the full extent to which you are a, a debtor, a debtor, you will never know, you'll never yada the full love and grace of God. I mean, Paul, for, 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 for Paul to say, and I don't think he just said this as just a cold proposition. I, I almost probably uh, see tears coming to his, to his eyes and his heart just exploding when he talks about how deep and wide and long is the love of God in Christ. It's like he just describes it as this ocean. And how can Paul just know that and be moved by that? Because Paul can also say, I, Paul, chief of sinners. And oh, what a wretched man that I am. Because this experience, to first see our debt, not other people's debt, not the, the, the sin and the evil in our culture, but to look in our own lives, our own hearts, and to see it. And then to see Jesus standing in my place. How he took upon himself everything that I deserve so that I could get everything that righteous Jesus deserves. That is knowing Passover personally. I mean, even on a small scale, this moves us. This is why all the best movies, all the best stories... Um, take and rob this, this concept, and, and I don't care that they rob it because it's, it's the truth of all truths, and, and, and they, but they do it because it's, it's what moves us. It's what changes our hearts by melting them. I mean, one of the favorite novels that I had to read when I was in college, A Tale of Two Cities, by Charles Dickens, starts off, these are the best of times, these are the worst of times. It's, it's essentially a story about two men Charles Darnay and Sidney Cartone, who both love the same woman, Lucy Minette. Lucy ends up rejecting Sidney and chooses to marry Charles. However, sometime later, this is during the French Revolution, her man of her choosing, Charles, is thrown in prison and awaits the guillotine. When Sidney hears of this, Late at night, he goes into the prison and he drugs Charles and he dresses Charles with his clothes and takes Charles' clothes upon himself so that Sidney that night could be taken to his freedom. And a young woman is watching this who's also on death row. And when she realizes what Sidney just did, how this guy now is going to take the guillotine in his friend's place, she's so moved that on the next day when they're walking to the guillotine, she says, would you just hold my hand? 
And in that moment, that hand comforted her. And how much more with Christ that when we realize that we are on death row and that Christ comes into our prison and he takes off our clothes and puts them on himself and he takes his clothes and puts them on us. And he goes to the guillotine in our place. That's the gospel. And that's the power that we need to get the leaven out of our lives. Paul spends 11 chapters in Romans talking about the grace and mercy of God for both the Jew and the Gentile. But he's only saying that to set up his thesis statement, which is 12 verse 1. Therefore, in view of God's undeserved grace and mercy, now I want you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Has this truth melted you? See, this is what causes the penny to drop from a proposition in our brain to this life-changing power in our lives. What's the leaven in your life? What's the leaven in your family? What is it that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on? Therefore, in view of God's mercy, his undeserved grace, get it out. Let's pray. God, to make this about our, ourselves and our performance is to become a really good Pharisee. But God, to look at the leaven in our lives in light of your holiness, which causes desperation and need, and then to see the love of God, which is in Christ. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy is us. God, you love us that much. God, open the eyes of our heart to see the love of God, which is the power of God. To change us. So we can experience Christmas. The Christmas of getting the leaven out of our lives. The experience of freedom. By your grace. And the help of your Holy Spirit. God, root it out. Help us in Jesus' name.